0: Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation.
1: Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 45, Out There Asian Adventures with Rick Gazarian. Many people take at least one trip per year, then spend the rest of the year dreaming about their next one. For some, this trip is a week or so in length, but there are a growing number of individuals that are finding creative ways to make travel their full-time gig. These people roam the world experiencing places, activities, then blog about them, take photos, videos, and find creative ways to generate a full-time income and stay on the road. Today we'll chat with Rick Gazarian, an American who's been doing just that for a number of years and find out what his life in travel has been like. So this is Scott Coates in Bangkok, Thailand, recording in person with my trusty co-host hey scott trevor ranges here uh recording
0: hey, man. in person with you yeah but yeah. you actually recorded this episode up in chiang mai uh back chiang in, rai chiang rai that's right up yeah. in february yeah
1: yeah yeah it was at the uh pata adventure travel and responsible tourism conference 2016 they had us up as media and sat in on some of the panels and stuff and rick was one of the keynote speakers there and so yeah we sat
0: down with him after his speech yeah it's always cool to meet some of these people that uh make their living by by traveling and i know that and, and Most of our listeners who are familiar with us know that you know we were both in the travel industry as well, and uh, that as a travel writer, I you know that was my life. You know that's how I made my living, Mm -hmm. and people were always like, "Oh my God, that's like the best job in the world." Super glamorous, right? Yeah, it's like the 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 best job ever. Yeah, and again, like you know what I always used to tell people is that like if you could eat your favorite food every day for the rest of your life yeah you'd get bored of eating the same thing every day now one of the beauties of traveling for work is just that you get to see different places you know um but i was always kind of jealous of some of these bloggers because they get to kind of travel a bit more like there's more freedom to travel i think that's kind of the difference where like lots of times i'm going to travel and write about um somewhere that i was sent on assignment yeah You know, so what was your experience like?
1: Well, I mean, mine was pretty neat, too. And I I think I suffered sort of suffered isn't the right thing. But people always thought, too, I'm just hanging out at hotel pools. And every day you're mountain biking or riding an elephant, which isn't reality. I mean, we were building a successful adventure travel business. And a lot of that is spent in offices. It's hiring and training guides. So while I loved every day and every part of it. At a certain point, I, I did realize one time where I was kind of like, oh, man, I got to fly. I think it was like to see Amri up again. And, you know, oh, I've got to go see the, the ruins of Angkor. I'd kind of like to stay home. And, you know, maybe it wasn't that particular spot. But when you realize sometimes you don't want to leave home, but you think about where you're going and what you get to do and that most yeah. people would kill. But, you know, that said, it was running a business, too. And there was accounting to do. And there was, you know, HR issues to deal with. But But it was great. And it was fun. Um, but you know, as things got bigger, actually, it's funny in the early years, you do travel a lot and you do all of it, but as business becomes more successful, you're kind of end up spending more time in the office and sometimes i'd go hang on is this what i got into this for like it's yeah yeah."
0: and i think there's something of like the grass is always greener because you know people used to ask me oh what do i do with my free time and i'm like i do laundry you know i stay in bed (laughs) i watch tv yeah and uh, and for years all i wanted was just an office job and sure and and now i've had one for just a a bit over a year and and i'm pretty happy and and it's funny that i don't get to travel as much as i used to Mm. um but i guess I don't know that I miss it so much. Like, I still get to travel a bit just because living in the region, it's so easy. Um, But I don't know that that I would want to just become a full-time travel blogger right now. And and so it, it's always fun to talk to people who are doing it, who are still passionate about it, because, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, traveling is one of the, the greatest experiences you can have with your life.
1: Yeah, well, before we go any further, let's uh, thank our sponsor, who is PATA. They are the Pacific Asia Travel Association. They are a not-for-profit association that acts as a catalyst for the responsible development of travel and tourism to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. The association provides aligned advocacy advocacy, insightful research and innovative events to its member organizations which is comprised of 88 government state and city tourism bodies uh, nearly 22 international airlines airports and cuisine lines 62 educational institutions and it goes on from there but they were kind enough to have us up as media to their conference in Chiang Rai so thank you to Pata. So Trevor you know you and I have met a lot of we had an episode on digital nomads quite a few episodes ago and these are people that kind of use travel and virtual offices to actually maybe do other businesses but i think we've both met a lot of people who have made their whole shtick traveling and telling other people about it
0: yeah you know and and i think like when we had dev and dave on and then we did that digital nomads episode like you know i think it's much more difficult to succeed at than a lot of people think i think that it's quite challenging to make your living um, as a, a travel blogger or like a travel photographer, um, everybody wants to do it, but I think it's it's more difficult to make ends meet um, than than people realize.
1: Yeah, I mean, technology on one hand has enabled. Any semi-clever person, I think, to have a good-looking blog, photography is easier than ever, so you can have great-looking images if you can write so-so even, you can get some script up, but the market seems to be overcrowded, and I've talked to bloggers, I'm sure you've talked to people that I think it it's a great lifestyle, maybe for a year or two if you've got money saved up to float yourself, you get lots of freebies in hotels and tours, but you know Dave and Deb you mentioned them they had a great caution they were like when people ask them about it they're like don't be under any illusions that you're gonna a year or two into it just start making a bunch of money so I think it could be like fun for a while but just personally I can imagine it getting really kind of tiring maybe after a couple years always feeling like you got to get a blog up you got to get photos up and you're also serving the people you're getting freebies from like you can't really bash them right
0: yeah I think uh yeah, that's one of the things I, I I would worry about doing that is that you have to like kind of pander and you have to kiss lots of butts and, you know, like <laughs> you really you, you have to work it really hard. Right. Yeah. So and and then it travel is expensive and you have to have a good amount of money saved up. So I think like for people who are considering doing it, I think you want to have like a little nest egg escape hatch, like something waiting for you, like yeah. when you get burned out and you can't take it anymore. If I were to do something like this, I would say do it as a hobby, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. every year go on different trips blog about it, but keep your day job. And then like, you know, once you actually get some traction, like if you can get some traction, Mm. um, then maybe like try and take the leap to, to doing it full time. Um, also though, I think like, you know, Rick, who you're going to speak with today, um, is doing some pretty cool stuff you know like if you want to like really get some some interesting traction like not just going to exotic places but doing a different twist on it you know like making it interesting for people to follow you you know he's got a couple of documentaries some of the stuff he talks about like i i want to do it you know i want to join him
1: yeah let's do it well let's bring him in our guest today is rick gazarian he has made a full-time job of travel he was firmly in the corporate mainstream working mostly in banking then got laid off in 2008 from lehman brothers and decided to take life in a new direction. He immediately set out and traveled to all seven continents and has a goal of visiting all 193 countries that the UN officially recognizes. He's been to 93 of them so far, documents his journeys on his website Global Gaz, and joins us today in Chiang Rai, Thailand at the Pata Adventure Travel and Responsible Tourism Conference 2016. All right, thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia, Rick. Um, We'll start off with saying where are you originally from and where do you call home now?
2: Hey, Scott, thanks for uh, the opportunity to speak with you today. Great. So I was born in Boston, Mm -hmm. uh, went to university there. Mm -hmm. Um, Several years after college, I ended up moving to Chicago. Okay. Uh, Basically kept on getting laid off from my corporate jobs, (laughs) which uh, eventually led to a life of travel. And... All things being equal, I'd say Bangkok is now my home because I'm spending about six months a year in Thailand.
1: Yeah, well I know you got laid off, Lehman Brothers was the one I I read, that sounded like the final straw. Um, I'm assuming you traveled and then decided to try and make this a living, or at what point did you decide, I'm gonna try and make travel the full-time job?
2: Yeah, I think the, the challenge was I didn't realize that it was a possibility to make travel your Location. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually got laid off in 03. Okay. And that was a great opportunity for me. I'd been working nonstop for you know fifteen years in the corporate world. Yeah. And I said, mm, let's take advantage of this time. Mm-hmm. And I did a nine month trip around the world. Mm-hmm. And the realization is I'm going to do this and then go right back into the corporate world. Okay. Which I did and I got back to the U.S. in a couple of months. I was back into a similar corporate job. Yeah. And then thankfully, I got laid off a year after that. (laughs) Yeah. That time, it was only a three-month trip. Okay. Then again, I came back in two months. I was back into a uh, similar role once again. Yeah. Um, Then there was 2008, uh, financial Armageddon. Lehman, Bear Stearns, everybody. Yeah. My company I was working with at that point, you know, in one week, downsized by 40%. Mm-hmm. I was ecstatic because I didn't like my job. I didn't like my boss. Yeah. But the problem was I was making good, decent money, and it's hard to quit and leave that. So yeah, this was the catalyst. I did an 11-month trip around the world in 2009, mm-hmm. and during that time period, I knew... That was the the straw that broke the camel's back. I knew that time I couldn't go back. Ah. And that was the point where I said, I'm going to have to figure something out, but I can't go back to that world anymore.
1: Right, right. Now, I mean, there's no shortage of people blogging about their travels and sharing it with the world. And I'm wondering, at what point or how far into trying to do this were you actually able to kind of maybe make it a full-time living? Because I'm sure there must have been a, a good few years maybe where you're using your personal savings. What what was the kind of turning point where, where it actually started to legitimately pay the bills and become a you know a, something that could run on its own?
2: Well, it's a little bit of a misnomer because okay. I have barely monetized my blog and my blog has yeah. not even been up and running for two years yet.
1: Oh, really? Okay.
2: So, what happened is that back to the realization i didn't know travel could be a full time job yeah i didn't even realize people were travel blogging yeah. when i did my 11th month trip mm-hmm. in 2009 so after that i realized people were creating these great blogs and yeah diarying their journeys around the world and i'm like god i wish i knew and I'd started it back then. Yeah. And each year I was traveling, but each year i procrastinated, procrastinate saying, oh, it's too late for me. I did this big trip and I didn't blog about it at that yeah. point. Um, so there was procrastination, procrastination. But at one point, which was um, summer of 2014, I said, finally time for me to oh, okay. make an effort and, and put down some of my memories on this blog. Yeah. And that's when I started it. And I still rue and regret yeah. I've missed hundreds and hundreds of great memories and yeah. travel experiences.
1: Well, the other side is you had enough money saved up from the golden parachute, I assume, to just travel and have fun. You,
2: well, the other part of that is after I came back from that eleven month trip in two thousand and nine, yeah, I did start a non travel business in the US. Oh, okay. But I've set it up where I can run it remotely. So okay. at the end of the day, that's where I derive my income. Ah. And the benefit for me is I can blog and write or photograph things of great interest for me, and I'm not really overly concerned with monetization of my blog at this point. Okay, And that will eventually come at a later point. Sure. But right now I'm just traveling where I want to and yeah. writing what I want to versus yeah. Worrying each day, like, oh, I got to do a hotel review yeah, yeah. because they gave me a two-night stay. Sure.
1: Sounds like the four-hour workweek kind yeah. of model you got set up. Well, you've done enough, enough interesting travel, and I mean, we could cover lots of podcasts, but I just wanted to touch on a few projects that that really stuck out taking place in Asia. And I saw that in 2012, you covered, what, about 2,000 kilometers in a rickshaw, like a seven-horsepower rickshaw across part of India. You turned that into a book and a documentary called Hit the Road, India. Can you tell us a bit about that whole experience?
2: Yeah, first of all, it was an incredible experience because it's 100% irrational. Okay. So um, India is a country of amazing highs and amazing lows. Okay. Um, And there's really no better way of seeing it than driving a semi-open, basically lawnmower (laughs) across the country. So starting in Mumbai, ending in Chennai, driving an Indian rickshaw with my friend, it's actually an organized event. Mm-hmm. So there's a company called The Travel Scientist, right. which puts on these rickshaw competitive events where teams yeah. from around the world gather yeah. and drive the same route together. So okay. just an amazing journey because it really shouldn't be done. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And expect the unexpected. Sure. How many
1: Tuk-Tuk's were involved in this race?
2: It, it was small. There were only six teams. Okay. Uh, so, But a great group of bunch of teams from Europe, some Australians. Uh, My friend and I were the North American representatives from Canada and the US. So a team is two people, is that right? Actually, it can be two or three. Okay. Uh, The winning team were three women. Okay. Hats off to them. Yeah. Uh, Two Aussies and a Brit, three girls, teachers in Dubai. Yeah. But great sense of adventure and they were the best prepared team yeah now what was uh,
1: the objective to finish it the the most quickly or what
2: yeah so for this uh event it really wasn't a race so it wasn't who could drive the fastest sure
1: that'd be dangerous i assume yeah it it would
2: add another whole element of danger and at the end of the day these things really didn't get much above uh 50 kilometers an hour okay um yeah so there there wasn't really a lot of um speed involved in this event. So the way the competition was laid out were challenges. Okay. So take photos of incredible Indian mustaches attached to a man next to your tuk-tuk. Okay, cool. You would earn points for doing something like this. Or there's a temple... In the middle of this village, find out the name of this temple, Temple, take a picture of the temple. Ah, cool. Or um, there's a charity component yeah. raising money for um, an organization called Roundtable India, Okay. Um, which is sort of like the Rotary Club. And they support right. tons of uh, educational efforts throughout India. Right. You could raise money for them. Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> one of my favorites is Costume Day. Okay. So it's... If you're driving a tuk-tuk as a white person in India, yeah, you are the center of attraction. I'm sure. But if you're driving a rickshaw in India, dressed up as Elmo and Cookie Monster, uh-huh, you're gonna get that many more, okay, that
1: much more attention. Sure. So where did the race start and end, and how many days was it?
2: It started in Mumbai. Yeah. Went south down the coast, then cut across east to Chennai. Okay. Two thousand kilometers, give or take. And was about twelve days with one day of rest in Goa.
1: Okay. Now, I mean, I assume you encountered storms, hot days. What were some of the kind of most extreme memories from that trip? Well, we
2: might have to do a second podcast. Okay. Um, yeah it was really a trip of extremes and this is my poor research i remember checking the weather like oh what's the weather in july yeah and i think i looked at mumbai and chennai the starting and the end point yeah which were both very hot and humid yeah um but the trip took place one during the monsoons which i did know okay so i mean for several days i mean we were talking incessant hard rain i mean vertical horizontal i mean real tough and then the other third part i would say we actually were at some pretty high elevations crossing mountains okay so there were some very chilly and cold days Uh, so we had the hot and humid yeah we had the monsoons and then we had the much cooler temperatures which were a bad combination with the rain so you're soaking wet yeah on top of you know Cool temperatures
1: okay cool well uh we'll have in the show notes we'll have the link to the book and to the documentary which people can watch as well but this ties right into one of your latest big epics and you did a 12-day roughly i think 1600 kilometer tuk tuk rally uh around cambodia last year in 2015 like tell us about that
2: yeah uh just another great adventure and just another really great platform to see a country so a different company called Large Minority right. um, is organizing an annual event okay. called the Cambo Challenge. Yeah. It's the same concept. You're driving a totally inappropriate vehicle. It's a remork, the, yeah. Yeah, it's the uh, Remork. It's the Cambodian iteration of their rickshaw, which is basically a moped yeah. with a carriage stapled onto the back.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
2: I think ours was like 105 cc's. yeah. There's no brake for the carriage. It's yeah. a pretty unstable sure. uh, vehicle. Yeah. And 100% open, really. Yeah. Uh, especially for the driver. Um, mm. So we started in Seam Reap. Yeah. Beautiful temples of Wat, And we went south and east around Tonle Sap Lake. Uh-huh. Went to Sicanaville on the beaches. Yeah and then headed back north but now on the west side of the lake back to Siem reap so uh 12 days around 1600 kilometers
1: sure and you have a documentary coming out later this year right 2016 yep Yep. and what's that called uh not too original hit the road cambodia hey there's a theme there so what what can people expect from that like how long is it what what can people expect if they Mm -hmm. want to download it or have a watch
2: yeah both both films hit the road india and hit the road cambodia uh, full feature length documentary. So, Okay. Adventure travel documentaries. The first one is 80 minutes. The second one should be around the same length as well. Cool. Uh, the first film was distributed on iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, indie raid we played in a number of film festivals oh neat our films were even licensed this was pretty exciting for us by klm and virgin australia oh nice so they were uh played on those airlines for about three months each so yeah we're hoping for a similar strategy and hopefully a little bit more success yeah with the uh the next film hit the road cambodia when it comes out yeah can
1: you pin down an area of cambodia that you enjoyed the most during the trip
2: uh a lot um even though i had been there several times before, I think the temples of Angerwater Seam Reap are yeah. one of the most impressive, beautiful, magical places I've ever seen in the world. Okay. And I hope to go back many, many times yeah. because it's just a fantastic place.
1: Cool. Well, I know going to a completely different part of Asia is uh, one of the ones that kind of fascinated me more was the book you did, Photos from Chernobyl, where you document a two-day journey to the site of the world's worst atomic disaster. What led you to go there, and what were those two days like?
2: Um, yeah, uh, first of all, that was maybe my best well, this is hard to say. Sure. One of my favorite travel experiences of 2015. Yeah. Okay. It had been on my radar screen and on my bucket list. And I'd been to Ukraine once before, maybe in 08. Mm-hmm. And between not having enough time and maybe being a little fearful of radiation, I didn't end up going. <laughs> yeah. um, I went back to Ukraine this summer and I'm like, let me do this. Okay. Um, I did enough research where I thought I was going to be uh, safe from yeah you know, any radiation sickness um the stats are maybe I think about ten twelve thousand people visit Chernobyl a year, okay about eighty percent of them do the day trip, yeah um so about twenty percent or twenty five do a two day trip okay and you know the rationale was I wanted a more in depth exposure,
1: okay. Uh, good exposure. Uh, good exposure. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah. bad word. Yeah. I, I wanted
2: more in-depth time, so I opted yeah. for the two-day trip, and okay. I, I thought it was amazing, intriguing, tragic. Um, but it's called the exclusion zone. That's the area surrounding reactor number four. Okay. And it's basically not not walled off literally, but walled off by the military. You need a special permission to yeah. enter this area. There's actually a small hostel huh. in the area, so you sleep overnight. Yeah. Um, so we had two full days of exploration. Huh. Um, in the area, and it was just really eye-opening.
1: And is this an organized tour, or do you just have a driver, or what's what's it like?
2: Yeah. So uh. there's several handful of companies which organize tours. From what I can tell, though. Uh-huh. Once you get to Chernobyl, you're met by a government guide. Oh, okay. So at some level it's all the same tour. Yeah. Yeah. Once yeah. you get there. So we yeah. had an awesome guide, Misha, uh-huh from the government, who brought us around for two days. The other real awesome thing on my tour, it was me and only four other people. So it was okay. a small group. Yeah. It wasn't like thirty people on the bus. Yeah. Um and I felt and the other thing it was it wasn't one of those situations like, okay, we're gonna go walk around for three hours, and now you can have a four-hour rest. Yeah. In the hostel. Yeah. It, the whole day. I. I mean, I felt I really got my money's worth. Yeah. And we got our take our. We took our time and really got to walk around and explore.
1: So I, I mean, what is it like there? Like, just to help our listeners. Like, what is it like in Chernobyl
2: walking around? Yeah. So it's a pretty big area. The exclusion zone prior to the nuclear explosion in 1986, uh, the population was around 150,000 people. Okay. For all intents and purposes, those people have all been evacuated. Okay. In the shadow of Chernobyl yeah, is a town called Pripyat. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest town. It was about 50,000 people. All right. On top of that, there were dozens or about 100 maybe – Smaller towns and villages in this area. Yeah. But walking through Pripyat, which is, you know, full of full-size building or 20-story apartment buildings. Yeah. And now it's a race of man versus nature. So Uh you walk into the big um, park uh, where the buildings are surrounding the park. Yeah. And it's now overgrown by trees. Sure. Which was once an open area 30 years ago. Yeah. You can see how nature... Is beating man, um, huh. and the other really c- cool thing for me is the town is frozen in time, virtually from 1986, hmm. i.e., the Soviet Union. Okay, so you walk into yeah, yeah. these areas; it's the red Soviet star. Huh. It's the sickle and hammer. Yeah. So you have all these vestiges from the Cold War, the communist area error. Yeah. Yeah. still visible. Huh. Um, but. You're walking through a ghost city. Mm. The buildings are falling apart. They're dilapidated. They're empty. Yeah. It's spooky. Uh, it's surreal. Yeah. It's tragic and amazing. Cool. Did you get a pair of lead underwear with the tour <laughs> to wear? Uh, so <laughs> we didn't get that. When you leave the exclusion zone, yeah, you go through a checkpoint. Okay. In the checkpoint are some radiation detection machines. Oh, yeah. And you... Stand in them. Yeah. And they either go red or green. Uh-huh. Red means you've been contaminated with radiation. And what happens then? Do you know? Um, yeah. So in general, <laughs> my guide, who yeah. I think, let's say he does two weeks on, two weeks off. He's uh-huh. been doing the job for a couple of years. He walks around with a dosimeter. So okay. in other words, this device is recording the radiation he gets every day. Okay. meets with the doctor a couple times a year. But he's telling me from his couple of years, the detection device, Mm. I think he said went off twice on him. Okay. What that entailed was he had to throw away his clothing. Oh, that's it. So that was, the clothing was contaminated. He lost it. Okay. I think at this point, the guides, there's some very, very hot areas, I believe, within the, the exclusion zone. Okay. They don't go there. Yeah. Because they know where they are. I sure, mean, sure. They've yeah. been there so many times. Yeah. And they also have a, um, you know, radiation detective yeah. Yeah. Uh, device. Yeah. And they can walk around and they'll go, hey, guys, come here. And then you'll hear the device go, doo, 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 doo and then you can see yeah you back off and and then because they know where these crazy hot zones are so you don't want to sure. spend time there
1: well yesterday at the uh, keynote that you gave here in Chiang rai at the uh, travel conference uh you mentioned one of thailand's islands that i've been quite intrigued about And we talk a lot about thailand on this podcast and whatnot and i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience to the surin islands the pictures look great
2: yeah, the um, last year, or maybe the other year, um, went to Kolak, uh-huh. which is north of Phuket. Yeah. Um, just uh, about an hour drive from the airport and set up shop there okay. for a couple of days. Yeah. And did three day trips.
1: Okay, so these were day trips out to Surin from Kolak.
2: Yeah, well, actually, we did three day trips. Okay. One to Surin. Yeah. One to Dacha Island. Mm-hmm. And one to Similan Island. Okay. Th- this was a catch-22. Yeah. And what I mean by that... And I'm not in, I'm not encouraging anybody to visit the islands in the way I did. Yeah. Because these islands are hundred percent the epitome of every postcard you've seen yeah. in Thailand of a beautiful beach. Okay. But the problem is the mass market day trip tourism aspect to them. Right. So you pull up to Dacha Island, which literally has a white sand, I think it's eight hundred meter beach. Uh-huh. That's pure perfect, perfection. Okay. With incredible snorkeling. Yeah. The problem is literally 50 speedboats pull up yeah. with 50 people each virtually oh, okay. at the same time. Ah, uh, all right. So, Dacha Island and Simlin were both the same experience. Okay. Perfection. Yeah. But overcrowded. With 2,000
1: plus people instantly hitting the sand.
2: But, Surin Island. Yeah. Was a little bit further away.
1: Yeah, it's far from Kalak. Uh,
2: A little bit further away. Yeah. And did not have that experience. So okay. I don't know if the additional distance made the difference. Yeah. But we got there and, I mean, there's definitely a handful of speedboats. Yeah. But it wasn't 50. Sure. So perfect, beautiful beaches Awesome snorkeling. Yeah. The other cool thing is there's a village of sea gypsies or Moken people. Yeah, 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 Which gave another real attraction to spend a little time walking in there. Yeah. The other part, they have tents on this island. Oh, okay. So you can sleep overnight. Ah. I didn't do that. That's yeah. now on my list. It's next. Because I want to see the sunset, the sunrise. Yeah. And even at night, there'll be that many less people because the day trippers are gone. Sure. Dacha Island and Simlin our day trips. Uh, day trip islands, you can't sleep overnight right. on those islands. You gotta
1: stay on a boat if you're snorkeling or scuba diving. Yeah right? yeah.
2: So basically anybody who's listening, yeah, go to Simulan and spend uh, one night or two nights or three nights relaxing there.
1: So is that Surin, you mean not Surin. Surin? Surin. So, but on Surin, are are you? Is there only the tents available, or are there any guest houses? There's a
2: couple, of, a handful of cabins as well.
1: Okay, and there's a couple tiny, tiny little restaurants or something. You can get yeah. some fried rice. Or... Yeah, I
2: mean, there's definitely some food available, so you don't have to worry about that. Okay,
1: so is that beautiful, like Surin? If you can make it, definitely go. I don't know how you wouldn't want to go there. Okay. Okay. Um, now, I hate the word favorite because whenever people ask me my favorite, it's impossible. But could you just share maybe a couple travel destinations in Asia that really stand out to you as memorable places that you've really loved?
2: Yeah. So I was just having this conversation uh, recently. So I'll do my four favorite landmarks okay. in Southeast Asia, if that will work. Sure. So we touched on one, um, Anger Wat. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you first lay eyes – on this magnificent landmark, it's, it's hard to comprehend that these were built by man yeah. a thousand years ago or 1,500 years ago. Sure. Um, and I think there's three other landmarks in Southeast Asia that I've seen that elicit the same feelings from me. Okay. Uh, one is in Indonesia, and I'm not pronouncing this very well, I'm sure, Borobudur. Uh, Borobudur. Tem- okay. Yeah. That temple, it's I guess the biggest Buddhist structure it's in the middle of a jungle. It's an incredible place to capture and watch the sunrise. Yeah. And same thing, you look at the structure and you're like, how was this ever created back yeah. then? Yeah. Um, and the other two are in Burma. Okay. Um, in the capital, or actually the former capital, Yangon. Yeah. Uh, the Shwedagon Pagoda. Yeah. It's this magnificent golden stupa. Mm. I don't know if it's 100 or 150 meters tall. It's big. <laughs> it's beautiful, fantastic. And I had experienced the other year. Mm-hmm. I went around 4 o'clock, mostly filled with locals with their families or praying or spending time there. Pretty crowded. I stayed till closing, which is around 10 p.m. Yeah. The place had virtually emptied out. Yeah. Um, and again, at the very top of this structure, which is 150 meters tall, are chimes. Mm. So the moon's out. The place is pretty empty. The chimes are blowing in the wind. Yeah. And it was pure magic. Cool. In um, the fourth place, also in Burma, are the temples of Bagan. Yeah, magic. Which, again, is... yeah, I mean, just... I think it's roughly 2000 pagodas, different sizes, different shapes, dotting the landscape and to spend a couple of days exploring that area is also just a must do for anybody coming to this area.
1: Great. Well, I know that one of your big travel goals, you mentioned again in the talk yesterday that you gave, was that you want to get to every country that the UN officially recognizes. Um, What are a few places in Asia that you've not been to that you'd really like to visit?
2: Yeah, I've done a pretty good job of covering Asia, but um, I have a big gap in Central Asia, Okay. So like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Um, those, from you know, from what I've heard, from what I've read, are truly fascinating and unique destination. Yeah, I'm excited to go there whenever yeah. I'm able to. Okay, um, so that area, um, and then kind of. East of us, the only one left that I really have is Papua New Guinea, Okay. which is, again, from my reading and understanding, is a pretty unique place in terms of yeah. off the beaten path. So I okay. think that should be pretty interesting as well.
1: Cool. Well, last question for you here, Rick, is uh, what is next for Rick this year? I, I think you mentioned yesterday that you're approaching your 100th country. So what's 2016 have in store for you?
2: Yep. Um, so in early April, I'll be leaving Bangkok for close to two months. Okay. And I got about um, seven or eight new countries that will get me to either 100 or 101 before June. So I'm pretty excited to finally reaching this uh, 100th country milestone. Sure. Where are you going? Um, so the trip will be Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Liechtenstein. Okay. Four new countries. Yeah. Uh, revisiting Armenia, which I've been to, probably this will be my 14th time. Okay. To meet my partners who are the filmmakers of the okay, Hit yeah. the Road, Cambodia. Sure. New country of Iran. Oh, which nice. I'm totally excited about. Yeah. New country, Bulgaria. Yeah. Quick stop in Dubai for a couple of days. Yeah. And then two new countries, which I'm very excited about and not visited very frequently Djibouti and yeah. Eritrea. Oh, wow. Man, you're hitting the extremes here of Africa
1: and Europe. Wow. Yep. So, wow. Cool. Well, um, in our show notes, we'll have your personal website up and links to your films and the books and whatnot. But uh, thanks for making time to sit down and chat here in Chiang Rai, Rick. Uh, fascinating stuff.
0: Okay, this is Trevor back here in Bangkok. Uh, I I thought that was a really interesting conversation you had there, Scott.
1: Yeah, it was pretty neat. I mean, the one thing that struck me, we talked before the interview about... A lot of uh, travel bloggers doing tours and hotels and then kind of reviewing or reporting on them. One thing I thought was kind of neat about Rick's model is he has a business set up in the States that doesn't require a lot of time from him that kind of covers his needed income. So it seems that the traveling he's doing is traveling he really wants to do. So he's not kind of beholden to any hotels or tour companies to report. He's just going places he wants to go
0: yeah i think like unless you have some sort of computer job computer-based job like a web programmer or something like that like we were saying in the intro it's probably good to have like a day job or a fallback job or or some other source of income um because obviously being able to go to chernobyl or do like cambodian tuk-tuk rallies is is way more fun way to travel than having to suck up to hotels and and try and like you know write good reviews or or, or pander to sponsors even you know
1: yeah yeah and you know it was cool talking to him to just think about thailand where i've been for like 14 and a half years and there's still so many places i haven't been like the surin islands everyone that come here is in the quest for the great beach and yeah you know see those photos and you're like yeah like how many people overnight at the surin islands i bet you close to
0: zero yeah well the the surin islands and that andaman discoveries malkan experience is still definitely on my bucket list um and and you know it's good it's not good i don't know you're right everybody's looking for the ultimate beach, and. Places like even the Similan's, which is one of the most beautiful places in Thailand, is is over touristy from from day trips, right. you know. So uh, I kind of like the fact that he's out there exploring, trying to, to find the, the cool stuff. Yeah. And I'm
1: keen to watch the documentary on the. Uh Indian tuk-tuk rally, and you and I were talking just before recording. That like, how did we not know about the uh, Ramok or tuk-tuk rally in Cambodia? And like, it happens in October apparently. So, I don't know. We keep making threats to do stuff we don't end up doing. But man, that would be seriously cool. To see if we could not kill each other for two weeks in one yeah. of those around the country. No,
0: yeah, the tuk-tuk rally. That that sounds awesome. And I like the way he did it in India. He was saying that where you had to do it like scavenger hunt style. Yeah, I was. Cool. And, and had a little bit of like a charity work inclusion. Um, um, he didn't mention in this interview whether or not Cambodia included the scavenger hunt type features, but mm. uh, I think it's awesome that he recorded it made documentaries about it because now we can just download it and watch it and find out you know, exactly what it's like. And yeah, I think we should do it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this one was a bit refreshing to me because it seems up till Rick, most of the models I've met have just been people really trying to like keep doing the tours, keep staying at the hotels, and that's fine and everything, but they're just... Not that many people, I imagine, can sustain the full-time living versus, you know, Rick sort of set up. I mean, I guess he's been fortunate enough, too, to have a successful enough living before he got fired mm-hmm. and he set up a business. But he's got this other mechanism that's now allowing him just to do what he wants to like. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I think that's about all I've got to say. Trevor, do you want to take us out?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, that's one of the cool things about our show is just that we – introduce you to interesting people like this and hopefully provide some inspiration for you, um, whether or not you're a retired Wall Street person who has enough <laughs> yeah. money and youth to, to enjoy traveling your life or, or some other friends I was just thinking about who are, you know, genuine travel journalists and writers who are still right. living the dream um it is possible for for anybody if, if they really do want to do it and they have the passion for it and i'm glad that we get to interview some of those people
1: yeah sweet well thanks for joining us another episode in two weeks this
0: is scott coates saying farewell this is trevor ranges thanks for listening and uh we hope to have you back in two weeks
1: thanks for joining us on talk travel asia we look forward to sharing with you again soon hey scott do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at